Jesus, we come before you and we ask for a fresh anointing of your spirit that you would fill us, God, that you would guide us in your truth. We know we're hopeless and helpless to understand these words apart from your Holy Spirit, God. So we pray that your spirit would teach us all things that we could possibly comprehend, that we would understand how this passage applies to us, how it affects us, how it also can change us. God, we know you change us by your word and by your spirit, God, and we want to be changed, Lord. So so help us uh, continue on in our walk of faith. Help us to be better than we were before, uh, Lord, and help us understand uh, the various things that Paul discusses in this text. Bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. How badly do you want to live? Like, how bad do you want to live? Now, now when I say live, I'm not just talking uh, about a general definition of living, right? Like, like uh, I'm breathing, my heart is beating, I'm existing. I'm not talking about existing, how bad do you want to exist? I'm talking about how badly do you want to live? How badly do you want to live the life that Jesus offers you? How badly do you want to live the abundant life, the joy-filled life? How badly do you want to be awakened for your very purpose in this life, the reason that Christ created you specifically? How badly do you want to live that life? Because the Bible is going to teach us here. That if you want to live the life that Jesus offers you bad enough, then you have to be willing to die to your flesh. The title of this teaching is Dying to Live. Dying to Live. Seems kind of backwards, right? Many people live to die. But the Bible teaches us that we're to die to live, that true life doesn't take place, that we don't experience the fullness of what God wants for us until we die, until we put to death our flesh. Jesus said it many times in many different ways in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, he says it like this. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The disciples knew what Jesus was talking about here. See, crucifixion was a common form of capital punishment in the Roman um, era. In Rome at this time, we know that they conquered Israel. Uh, so we, we know that the disciples were familiar with this crucifixion thing and this cross thing. Now, this is basically how it would work. If you committed a heinous crime that was deserving of capital punishment by crucifixion, the Roman soldiers would tell you, you see that hill up there, Calvary's Hill? You need to pick up this 200-pound cross, and you need to walk up that hill, and we're going to kill you on that hill. Now, I want you to put yourself in this person's shoes who's being crucified. If you asked me to pick up my cross, drag it up a hill so that you would kill me up there, I'd probably have a problem with that, right? It's like, you pick up the cross. I'm not going to pick up my own cross and then just die being crucified. Now, the Roman soldiers were pretty persuasive, right? If they couldn't persuade with words, they would often use whips, okay? They would make sure that you picked up that cross. But whereas criminals were often forced to pick up their cross, Jesus asks us to pick it up willingly. He says, if you want to come after me, willingly pick up your cross and follow me. What's he saying? If you want to come after me, if you want to be my disciple, then you have to have this mentality that I'm going to be obedient to the point of death. That's what picking up their cross meant. I'm going to be obedient to the authority, pick up my cross and walk it all the way up Calvary's Hill so that I could be crucified. This is what Jesus is saying. When he says, take up your cross daily and follow me. He wants us to be obedient at all costs. He wants us to deny our flesh at all costs. Why? Because our flesh 
is destroying us. When I say flesh, I'm talking about that carnal nature, that sinful nature, that thing in us that desires to rebel, that thing in us that desires to do wrong, that thing in us that desires to experience guilty pleasures regardless of the consequences. That's the flesh that the Bible's referring to here. That's the flesh that I'm referring to. Jesus says your flesh is killing you. Your flesh is destroying you. So if you want to live, you've got to destroy your flesh first. See, as long as your flesh is thriving, you're just surviving, but you're not living. When our flesh is thriving, we're existing, but we're not living. We're not living the life that Jesus desired for us. That's why he says, take up your cross daily. Deny yourself. Follow me. You've got to deny the flesh. You've got to destroy the flesh if you want to experience the abundance that Christ offers. See, Paul in Galatians chapter 2, is going to help bridge the gap for us between the understanding of justification, doctrinal justification that we're justified by faith and this concept of denying the flesh. He's going to merge these two thoughts together. Now, if you recall in Galatians chapter two, where we were last week is that Paul, he calls out Peter and Barnabas and the other Jewish believers in that area. Why? Because they basically told the Gentiles that they were better than them. Not in words, but in actions. Remember, Peter and Barnabas and the other Jewish Christians, they had a Jews-only table. And they wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. And Paul said, that's not right. Though you preach a true gospel, you're living a false gospel. And you're telling these Gentile believers that in order for them to be saved, they must come under the law of Moses as well. Your actions are preaching a works-based faith that we're saved because of what we do and not because of what Christ did. So Paul, as we discussed last week, he's fighting against legalism. He's fighting against the legalism of Peter and Barnabas and the other Jewish Christians that are there. Paul has been putting a huge emphasis on justification by faith. And he's going to continue to talk about this idea that we're justified by faith. And then as we get to verses 19 and 20, he'll help us understand what it means to crucify the flesh. Let's look at the text. It's Galatians chapter 2, verse 17. Galatians 2, 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. So throughout this dialogue, and it's kind of one-sided, we don't see them or hear the other Jewish believers or Peter or Barnabas say anything. It's Paul speaking and confronting all these Jewish believers to their faces because they did wrong. And as he's communicating, he's thinking in his mind by the Holy Spirit, what are going to be the rebuttals? Of these Judaizers. What are these Jewish Christians going to be thinking. When I say things like. We're justified by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. It's not of works. It's what Jesus did for us on the cross. What is it going to get these Jewish minded people thinking. Paul says it. But if we. If while we seek to be justified by Christ. We ourselves also are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin. What is he saying. These Jewish Christians believed that it was a sin to sit at a table with a Gentile. It was a sin to come under the same roof as a Gentile, let, or, let alone have a meal with a Gentile. As we discussed last week, their perspective of, of meals was not just that you're fellowshipping with man, but you're also in the presence of God. You're fellowshipping with God. And, and we wouldn't want to be in fellowship with a sinner Gentile when we're trying to be in fellowship with God. So they looked at this, eating with Gentiles, as a sin. Now, first off, it wasn't a sin. Okay, God didn't say that that was a sin. This wasn't a sin against God's law. This was a sin against their man-made traditions. God never said you cannot have fellowship with the Gentiles. You cannot eat with the Gentiles. In fact, we learn in Acts chapter 10 and 11, God said just the opposite. 
Remember, when he opened up the door for the gospel to be preached to the Gentiles, he didn't just open up the door so that Gentiles could be saved or that the Jews could preach to them. He opened up the door so that Gentiles and Jews could be in fellowship, that they could be together, that they could eat together, that they could be part of what? The same family, because that's the reality. When we accept Jesus, it's not just Jew or Gentile, it's the family of God. And this is something that God was trying to make clear to Peter. Peter, he understood it. Remember when he walked in Cornelius' house, he said, hey, 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 based on my traditions, it's unlawful for me to come under the same roof as you. But God says, you know, shows no partiality between Jews and Gentiles. He loves us all the same. So I'm going to come under the roof. I'm going to fellowship with you and I'm going to share the gospel with you. See the Jews in this context, these Jewish Christians in Antioch, they thought it was a sin to sit and eat with Gentiles. God makes it clear that it's not a sin. And what Paul's asking here is he saying, if God's okay with Jews and Gentiles eating together, then God's okay with sin, then Christ must be a minister of sin. Meaning Jesus died on the cross, and basically it was a green light for us to do whatever we want. That's what they're thinking. Look what he says here. Verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not! (laughs) Exclamation point. Or in other words, God forbid. No way! Don't be thinking like that. That's not what the gospel teaches. This is point number one. Grace does not condone sin. Grace does not condone sin. Just because we're saved by grace through faith, it doesn't mean that we should continue in sin. As Paul will say later on in Romans chapter 6 verse 1. For shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. Grace isn't a green light to sin. There is a reality that though grace does not condone sin, that God does not encourage sin, That the believer struggles with sin. Just because we struggle with sin doesn't mean that Jesus is condoning our sin. See, a believer is not someone who ceases to sin. A believer is someone who their sins have been forgiven. Okay, It's not someone that just stops sinning. It's someone who God has forgiven of their sins. Justification. It means to be declared perfectly righteous. Now, don't get this twisted. Justification doesn't mean that you are perfectly righteous, meaning that you live a perfectly righteous lifestyle. It means that God sees you as perfectly righteous, that he declares you perfectly righteous. When he looks at you, he sees you as the perfect image of his son. But we can't take that and turn it into, I'm a perfect Christian. Anyone ever met a perfect Christian? Are there any in this church? Yeah, you might not want to be here because we don't have any perfect Christians here, right? There's a reality. None of us are perfect. We all struggle with sin. We all fall short. We all make mistakes. But we can't take that and say, hey, I'm a sinner. Jesus died for my sins, so I'm just going to continue to sin. See, when we sin, it's on us. It's not on Jesus. It's on us. And there's a reality that we're each going to struggle with sin for the rest of our lives. But when we mess up, that's on us. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says it like this. In Romans chapter 7, verse 15. uh, You can hold your place here for later on. We'll be back here. Romans chapter 7, verse 15. He says... For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. He's talking about the struggle of sin in a believer's life. He says, I know what to do. Okay, I know what God's asking me to do. And sometimes I just don't do it. And the thing that I despise, the thing that I hate, that's what I find myself doing. There's this battle. There's this struggle. Even as a new creation in Christ, we still battle with sin. And we're going to continue to battle with sin until we're taken up by the Lord. 
But we can't take this truth, well, I'm going to be a sinner anyways, and use that uh, as an excuse and say my sin is okay, because our sin is not okay. In fact, the Bible teaches us in Titus chapter 2, in Titus chapter 2, what grace is actually supposed to produce in us. See, grace isn't just something that we receive. Grace is a tool. Grace is a tool to teach us. Let me show you. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, he says this. He says, for the grace of God that brings salvation. Okay, the context is grace. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age. He says, grace isn't just something you receive at salvation. It's something that's supposed to teach you. It's supposed to teach you to what? Deny ungodliness and worldly lust, to live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age. Grace is a tool. God wants to use that tool to to change us, to grow us. He doesn't want us to take that tool and misuse it and say, hey, grace is going to be there when I mess up. Grace is going to be there when I fall short. So I'm just going to jump into my sin. I'm just going to do whatever I want. Grace, again, is not a green light to continue in sin. It's a tool to teach us to live the way God's called us to live. Bottom line is we can't use grace as an excuse to sin. If I go about my Christian walk with the mentality that I can just do whatever I want, I can commit whatever sins that I want, and it doesn't really matter, God's going to forgive me, God's going to have grace on me, then I have a wrong understanding of biblical grace. Yeah, God is forgiving and God is gracious and God is merciful, but grace is supposed to produce something in us. We're not supposed to take grace and say, yes, I'm going to continue in sin. This is what Paul's talking about here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 17. Christ is not a minister of sin. Christ is a minister of holiness. He's a minister of righteousness. Galatians chapter 2, verse 18. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Paul, specifically here, he refers to going back to the Old Testament law and putting themselves under the burden of the Levitical law. He says, to go back to the law, to to, to put yourself back under the burden of the law is a sin. You falling back into legalism is a sin. Why? Yes, Christ died for your sins. One of those sins is religiosity. One of those sins is legalism. So you putting back on the yoke, the burden, you're trying to bear something that Jesus already died for. He says, hey, you go back to building those things again, and it doesn't just apply to the Levitical law. It applies to any type of rule system that we build up in our lives. When you build this thing back up, okay, I need to do A, B, C, D, and I'm building like this tower to reach the affections of God, to reach the love of God. If I can continue building my religious routine, if I can continue building my religiosity, then maybe, just maybe, God will love me. God will accept me. God will care about me. God loves us just the way that we are. He accepts us just the way that we are. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says, if you go back to building this bridge of rules, if you go back to putting yourself under the burden of the law, you make yourself a sinner. You make yourself a transgressor. Why? Because you're saying the cross wasn't good enough. That I'm not accepted by Jesus' death and resurrection. That his blood spilled for me wasn't enough. I need to supplement my faith. I I need to add to my faith this religious routine. Paul says that sin, trying to build that bridge back to God, is impossible. He built the bridge to us. We couldn't build the bridge to him. So when we go about trying to build our bridge to him, he says you're a transgressor. You're a transgressor. You're committing sin it's for the believer and the unbeliever alike 
He's talking to Jewish believers. Legalism is a sin. Religiosity is a sin. Putting my trust in my works versus Christ's works, it's a sin. See, the problem with religiosity and legalism is not just that it's a sin. Because it is. But there's another problem in what it produces in us. If I have this mentality that I'm going to build this bridge to win Christ's affections, what does that produce in me? It produces a mindset of obligation. It produces the mindset that I have to come to church or God won't love me. That I have to read my Bible or God won't love me. That I have to pray to God or God won't love me. That I have to serve at the church. I have to go to home groups. I have to do all these different things. I have to, I have to, I have to, I have to, I have to. That's religiosity. That's legalism. That's obligation. When we think it's about what we're doing to reach God, that's the mindset that it produces in us. Okay. Use this, might help you a little bit. Okay, you ever have a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Or, or maybe you're married. Uh, and you know how sometimes your significant other, um, they ask you to do things that you don't really want to do. Uh, maybe it's like going shopping, right? It, going shopping, or maybe it's grocery shopping, or whatever the case may be. And, and you ever ask your significant other to come do something with you, and the whole time they're like, I have to go shopping shucks, man, I'm here with her again. I'm here with him again. I hate shopping. I could be doing something else with my time. I could be so much more productive with my time. I'd rather be anywhere but here, shopping with my wife, right? That's the legalistic mentality. See, Jesus is the groom and we're the bride and Jesus does not want to drag us along in our religious routine. He doesn't want to produce this mentality in us where we're kicking the dirt as we follow him. That, 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 that we're looking at this walk with Jesus and we're like, oh darn, I'm at church again. Oh darn, I really got to read my Bible. Oh darn, the chronological Bible. Gosh, I got to catch up. I have to do this. I have to pray. If I don't spend this amount of time in prayer, if I don't start serving, if I don't do this and, and I'm just looking down the whole time kicking the dirt. He says, no, 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 stay at home. If that's your mentality, just stay at home. That's not the relationship that Jesus wants with us. He says, I'm the groom and you're the bride and I'm desperately in love with you. And I don't want you to feel obligated to do anything. I want you to feel grateful to do everything. I want you to have that heart that this is something I look forward to. This is something that I anticipate. Spending time with the groom. Spending time with Jesus Christ. He continues. Verse 19, for I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. Paul says that he died to the law. This is point number two. We are dead to the law. We are dead to the law. In Christ, the law as a means to get right with God. Hear me clearly. In Christ, uh, the law as a means to get right with God. Me saying, I'm going to follow the law to be right with God. He says that's dead. Paul says that he is dead to the law. He doesn't say the law died. He says that he's dead to the law. To die to the law is to renounce it and be freed from it. Okay? It's to renounce it. I don't live under the law anymore. I live under grace. Now, this is a huge deal. Why? Because Paul is declaring this publicly in front of a bunch of Jewish Christians. Peter and Barnabas including. Included, he says that we're, I'm not under the law. You want to live under the law? Then you're, you're living a different gospel than me. But Jesus died for my sins. And now I'm dead to the law. See, when Christ died on the cross, he said what? Many things, but he said, it is finished, right? The work is done. The work is complete. Jesus fulfilled it. Let me show you. It's Matthew chapter 5. Jesus told us he was going to do this. In Matthew chapter 5, and we'll go back here in a little bit. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. 
He says, do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Jesus came to fulfill the law to a T. And he fulfilled the law, not just in his life, but also his death. Why? Because the law... The penalty for not keeping the law was death. Sometimes it was death of a person. Sometimes it was the death of an animal, right? They would, they would kill birds or lambs or goats or whatever the case was for that specific sin. Sometimes there was options for different things that could be put to death for your sin. The law requires death. It requires it. That's part of it. It's in the writing of the law. If you don't keep the law, something needs to die. So Jesus, he fulfills the law, not just in his life, but also his death. He he paid the price. He died on the cross, fulfilling the law, but also freeing us from the law. Because Jesus fulfilled the law and paid the price, we are no longer under the Levitical law. Now, that doesn't mean that the law is bad, okay? The law is not bad if one uses it lawfully. There's a specific purpose in why God gave the law. In Paul, he talks about this purpose in Romans chapter 7 as he discusses that battle between the flesh and the spirit. But look what he says in verse 9. He says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taken occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. He says the the law was bringing forth death. Why? Because once I was aware of it, I realized I could not keep it. I could not keep God's law as soon as I was consciously aware of God's moral standard of God's law. I realized I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. I can't live up to God's expectations. I can't live up to God's standard. But guess what? That's the point of the law. The point of the law is to help us see who we really are. Anyone ever keep all Ten Commandments their whole life? Right? We've messed up somewhere along the road. That was the point. The law was there to expose us, to help us understand that we're sinners and we're in need of a Savior. See, looking into the law, okay? Looking at the law of God is like looking into a mirror. I can look into a mirror and realize I'm dirty, I need a bath, but the mirror is not going to cleanse me. The mirror cannot cleanse me. Have you ever looked in a mirror and said, man, my face is dirty, I'm going to clean it by rubbing it on the mirror? Like, no, you don't clean your face by rubbing it on the mirror. It's the same that holds true with the law. The law cannot cleanse you. Only Jesus can cleanse you. And he washes you by the water of the word and the blood that was spilled for us. That's the only way we're cleansed. The law cannot cleanse you. It's there to reveal that you're dirty. So he says this, Galatians chapter 2. I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. It says we're, we're no longer under the burden of the law. I don't live under the burden of the law. I live under what? I live under the covenant relationship that Christ and I have. This, this covenant that was opened up through his death and resurrection. This covenant, which we already mentioned, is a picture of a bride and a groom. See, we can look at this and go, hey, 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 don't have to live under the law anymore. I'm just going to live to God. It's harder to live to God than it is to live under the law. Let me show you. It's Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, look what Jesus says here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What? Scribes and Pharisees were the most righteous men in the land at that point. Everybody looked at the scribes and Pharisees and they're like, man, those guys are the standard of righteousness other than God. They're the ones that actually meet the mark. And Jesus tells the disciples, you know what? If your righteousness doesn't exceed theirs, you're not making it to heaven. What? What are you talking about, Lord? See, 
The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was external. It was hypocritical. It was all a show. What Jesus is getting at is that he's looking at a righteousness of the heart. He asks us to ask him to come inside, to dwell. And as he dwells in our hearts, then and only then, do our outward expressions of righteousness really add up? Why? Because they're pointing to the righteousness, not of us, but of Jesus Christ. The only righteousness we can ever bring to the table is that of Jesus Christ working in and through us. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. This is part of living for God. But living for God or living to God, as he says specifically, is not this constant looking over my shoulder. Was I exceedingly righteous today? Like, did, did I do exceedingly righteous acts today? No, no, no. We're trusting in the righteousness of Christ to work in and through us. And when I trust in his righteousness and not my own, guess what? A burden's lifted. Now I'm able to, to walk in joy. Now I'm able to experience this abundant life. And I'm not doing things out of obligation. I'm doing things out of gratification. I'm grateful for his righteousness because I know mine. It doesn't add up. He says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're going to break this down. First thing he says that he has been crucified with Christ. This is very interesting. We see that there were four things that were nailed to the cross, okay, when Jesus died. Obviously, Jesus was nailed to the cross, okay? There was also that sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Uh, in Colossians chapter 2, it says that, that our sins were nailed to the cross, but not that, not just that. Paul says, I was nailed to the cross. We as believers were to be nailed to the cross. What's he saying? Because Christ died in my place, it's as if I died on the cross. Not my actual body, but my flesh was crucified when Christ was crucified. This is point number three. Die to the flesh. Die to the flesh. <clears throat> This death to the flesh is a necessary part of every single Christian's life, okay? Now, uh, there's really two sides to this death to the flesh. There's the process of dying to the flesh, and there's also the position, as Paul says, I have been crucified with, uh, with Christ. Uh, the flesh is already dead, okay? Let's talk about the process real quick. It's what Jesus said again in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. To live for Christ is to die to our flesh. To die to our flesh, once again, it means to be obedient to the point of death. See, killing the flesh, the process of killing the flesh, it is just that. It's a lifelong process. What does that process look like? It looks like telling the flesh, no, 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 no. As many times as you have to tell the flesh, no. As we're telling the flesh, no, we're killing the flesh. See, when we accept Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. And this is the battle that Paul's talking about. We'll talk about it later on in uh, Galatians chapter 5. But we have a chance, every decision that we make, to feed the Spirit that God gave us or to feed the flesh. The more decisions that I make to feed the Spirit and deny the flesh, guess what that process is? I'm killing the flesh and I'm feeding the Spirit. The same holds true with the flip-flop. The more decisions that I make to, to feed my flesh, uh, I'm weakening the spirit in my life. I'm doing something called quenching or grieving the spirit. So when I feed the flesh, I grieve the spirit. Literally that word, he, it breaks his heart. Like when we feed our flesh, God's heart is broken. It's not just something small. That's not a big deal. He just gave him the flesh. No, his heart is crushed. That's what it means to grieve the flesh. So throughout our day, it comes down to decisions. This is what this really is. We don't have to over-spiritualize it. Killing the flesh comes down to decisions that we make on a daily basis. 
I tell the flesh no. I tell the spirit yes. One win for the spirit. Or I tell the spirit no and I tell the flesh yes. Now, now I'm, I'm feeding the spirit or the feeding the flesh. So this is the process of the death to the flesh. But there's also the position. And that's what he's specifically speaking of. I have been crucified with Christ. We know Paul wasn't crucified, right? Especially with Christ. He's not saying he was one of those thieves on the cross, right? But next to Jesus. No, he's not saying that. He says the old man's dead, okay? The, the old Paul, the, the Pharisee, the, the, the murder of Christians, the, the, the zealous Man, about the traditions of my father, that guy's dead. He's done. He's buried. He's not coming around anymore. That's what he means to crucify the flesh. When we accept Jesus, our old man accepts the cross. That's what it is. When I accept Jesus into my life, I'm saying my old lifestyle, my old man, is accepting crucifixion. I'm accepting the price that Jesus paid for my sins, but I'm also recognizing that the old life needs to be crucified. The old man must die. Paul says later on in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, Ephesians 4, 22, he says, put off the old man. Then he, then he later says, put on the new man. This, this putting off and putting on. See, there's this... Uh, uh, intersection okay between the process of death to the flesh and the position of death to the flesh as i continue to make decisions to put off the old man to to crucify the flesh to walk in the spirit as i continue to make those decisions put off the flesh put off the flesh put off the flesh guess what i find i find the new man in christ i find who i'm called to be in jesus christ but if i keep feeding the flesh i'm going to be lost Who's the new man in Christ? I don't know him. I don't recognize him. Because you're not acting like him. But as we put to death the flesh, we understand who we are in Jesus Christ. The new man, the new woman that he's created us to be. He says this, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's point number four. Christ lives in you. Christ lives in you. If you're a believer, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible teaches that Jesus comes inside of you. Not only does he come and dwell and live inside of you, the Bible says that he makes you a new creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, uh, if there is anyone in Christ, he is a new creation. See, Jesus... He regenerates us. He, he recreates us with that new birth. So what happens? Now Christ is alive in me and I'm alive in Christ. When we accept Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of us and he starts doing different things in our heart, right? He, he starts changing certain desires. He, he starts giving us motivation to change certain behaviors. We start seeing sin for sin, for what it actually is. And, and we also start seeing the righteousness of God for what it actually is. We start to understand God's heart for us. We start to understand who we're called to be in Christ. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 19. He says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He says, hey, if you're a believer, if you've accepted Jesus Christ, you got to recognize that Jesus didn't just pay the price for your sins. He paid the price for you, meaning now you belong to him. That's what he's saying. You don't belong to yourself anymore. He didn't just pay the price for your sins. He purchased you with his blood. He bought you. You're a part of him now. He's a part of you now. You know what that means? That means every single thing we do in this life we're bringing Jesus into that situation. 
I don't think we think about this enough. The Lord truly lives and dwells in us. So when we commit sin, when we commit sexual immorality or addictive behaviors or, or things that we do in the darkness, it's not like this. It's not just like, uh, I'm going to pretend Jesus isn't there and I'm going to just put the Bible under the pillow, okay? Or, or I'm going to take the cross out of my room while I perform this act that I know the Lord doesn't want me to do. It, it's not like we can just put the Bible aside or put the cross aside and assume he's not there. Not only is he there, he lives inside of us. So we're bringing him into that situation. So, so when we sin or commit sexual immorality or whatever the sin may be, we're actually saying, hey, Jesus, I'm bringing you into this. Not that Jesus is committing the sin. He's not. But we're bringing him into it. And that's exactly the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's speaking of sexual immorality. And he's saying, don't you know that when you perform these sexual immoral acts, you're bringing the Lord into it? Like he lives inside of you. It's not just him watching you from a distance. He actually lives inside of you. So the life I'm living, am I acknowledging that? Am I recognizing that? Jesus actually lives in me. Are there things in my life that I do that I wish he wasn't there? That I pretend that he's not there? Because if there are, those things need to change. He lives inside of us. Galatians chapter 2. He says, I've been crucified, crucified with Christ. There's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, the life which I now live in the flesh. Okay, there's different words for flesh uh, depending on the context. Uh, Paul's not talking about his sinful, carnal nature, okay, to rebel against God. He's talking about the flesh uh, in regards to his human nature. Uh, we cannot live in our sinful nature and give in to rebellion and all these various things and glory. We're not living for God when we're living in the flesh. Okay, that's not what he's saying. He's saying my human nature, I'm still walking, I'm still talking, I'm still breathing. This life, this flesh, I'm living for God. It says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, we're united to Christ through faith, but we're to live for Christ by faith. Faith doesn't end at an altar call. Faith doesn't end when we just accept Jesus into our life. Faith begins there. And we're called to live the rest of our life by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Faith is to continue. It's not just a one-act thing. It's supposed to keep going. That's why Paul and Barnabas constantly encourage the churches to continue on in the faith. It wasn't just uh, one prayer that you prayed. It's a lifestyle that you lived. Putting your faith in the Son of God. What does that mean? I'm trusting Him in every aspect of my life. I'm trusting Him with everything. I'm trusting Him with my family situation. I'm trusting Him with the relationship with my husband or my wife. I'm trusting Him with the relationship with my children. I'm trusting Him with my job. I'm trusting Him with my finances. I'm trusting Him... With everything. This is what it means to put my trust in tr Christ. Uh, I'm leaning on him for everything. And, and I recognize that he truly will make all things work together for good. This is what it means to live a life of faith in the Son of God. Why would we do that? It's verse 20. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I love this. Paul doesn't say, he doesn't just say... Um, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. No, no, no. He personalizes it. He's talking to a crowd of people. He says, Jesus Christ loves me. He gave himself for me. See, we can't think of the cross as just something God did for all mankind or that he offered to the world. Though that's true, there has to come a point in time where we recognize that he did this for me personally, that he did it for me specifically. I remember hearing when I wrote, Jesus died for the sins of the world. Okay, that's great, cool. Jesus is the Savior. 
nothing ever changed until I recognized Jesus died for my sins. Like, like he nailed my sins to the cross. He paid the price for my sins personally. Paul makes this personal and the gospel has to be personal. It can't be general. It can't just be for the world. We have to recognize it's for us specifically. Paul says he gave himself for me. That's why, this is why it wasn't hard for him to live by faith in the son of God. Jesus proved his love for me on the cross. He did enough for me on the cross to win my trust. I recognize uh, I can trust him. And look what he says. He says loved. It's past tense. He said he, he loved me. Now that doesn't mean he doesn't love me anymore. What he's saying is uh, I filter the love of God in my present circumstances through what Jesus did on the cross for me. He loved me then, and I know he loves me now. He, he, he redefined love on the cross. He performed the ultimate act of love on the cross. In fact, he didn't just redefine love. He, he defined greater love. In John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Saying something that he was going to do the very next day. Paul says, this is enough for me to live by faith in him. Like, he died for me. I can live for him. And that's his motivation to live for him. Because Jesus loves him. And that's got to be our motivation to live for him as well. Not out of obligation. It's got to be because Jesus loves me. I desire to live for him. As Paul says later on in 2 Corinthians 5.14, 2 Corinthians 5.14, he says, For the love of Christ compels us. Not the burden of the law, not my self-righteousness, not my attempts to win Christ's affections. His affections for me, his love for me is the very motivation I need behind everything that I do. He knows he's not working for Christ's love. Christ performed the ultimate act of love on the cross. Paul recognizes, I work from that. I work from what Jesus did on the cross. He goes on to say, Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God. Meaning, if we go back to putting ourselves under the burden of the law, we're rejecting God's grace. I'm not just going to put the cross aside. I'm not just going to put God's grace aside and act like the event never happened in history. Act like the event never impacted my life. He says, no, 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 that's not the gospel. And then he says this profound statement. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. What is he saying? If salvation is still of works, meaning we can earn it based on our merits, based on what we do, he said, then God sacrificed his son for nothing. He says, the Christ means nothing if we're still putting ourselves under the burden of the law and we think we can win God's love that way. We think that we can be saved based on what we do. He said, the Christ died in vain. So either... Christ died for our sins and we're under grace or Christ died for nothing and we're still under the law. We're still dead in our sins. Okay, he's making it very logical. We don't know what these other believers said, but I, I guarantee you they didn't say, yeah, well, then Christ died in vain, right? Like, they're not going to say that. They get it. Oh, shoot. So uh, it's it's an either or thing. Okay, we're either under grace or we're under the law, but we can't say that the, Jesus died for our sins if I'm still saying I have to win his affections. Those things don't add up. He says it's either Christ died for our sins or Christ died for nothing. It, it's one or the other. And if we're still putting ourselves under the law, we're saying that Christ died in vain. The cross wasn't enough. Now, Paul doesn't tell us how Peter or Barnabas or any of the other Jewish believers responded in this passage. I wish, I wish he did, but he didn't. Um, they're in Antioch now. Later on, we'll see they'll be back in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 15, uh, we do see um, though this was, uh, some time had gone by, we, we do see that James and Peter and those Jewish Christians at the church, they recognized exactly what Paul's saying here. They recognized that we're saved by grace through faith, that God didn't
didn't just open up the door to salvation for the Gentiles. He opened up the door for fellowship with the Gentiles. I love Paul. He was fierce in the face of legalism. He, he corrected the actions of Peter and Barnabas and those others who were portraying a false gospel. Not based on what they said, once again, but based on what they did. Excluding the Gentiles. Paul was ready to destroy religiosity. Before he was ready to destroy Christianity. He, he was ready to destroy a relationship with Jesus. But after he gets saved... He recognizes the destruction that religiosity can bring. See, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew legalism. He knew religiosity better than anyone. And he knew that his religious ways needed to die. He knew when he accepted Jesus Christ that his legalism needed to die. He knew he had to die to himself. He knew that he had to be crucified with Christ. Because until he died, he couldn't live. So I'm going to ask you, what in your life needs to die? Is it legalism? Is it pride? Is it sexual immorality? Is it a relationship? Is it a bad habit? Is it an addictive behavior? Because Jesus invites us to pen those things on the cross. He says, I already died for all those sins. Why do you keep bringing them back in your life? Like, I already paid the price for all. You don't have to bear the burden of that sin anymore. You can put it on the cross where I am. And he invites us to come nail our sins to the cross. He says, as long as these things are still thriving, in your life you're not living you're not living the life that i desire for you and until you're ready to put those things to death there's only so much i can do i offer this abundant life but in order for you to experience it there has to be a putting to death of the flesh do you want to truly live jesus says if we want to truly live then we must die Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, God, that you died for us, uh, Lord. And, and um, I pray that, that we would meditate on these words of Paul throughout our day, throughout our week. God, throughout our life, Lord, that these wouldn't just be uh, words that, that, that he wrote without having an impact in our hearts and in our lives, God, but they would be words that change us from the inside out. Lord, whatever we need to put to death in our life, God, I pray that you would help us understand what that is. Uh, Lord, and we know that, that you're not calling us to put things to death um, because you're angry at us or you want bad things for us. No, it's the opposite. It's because you love us and, and you know we can't live the way that you've called us to live and experience what you've, uh, what you've offered for us to experience if our flesh is still thriving in our life. So help us put to death those things that we may be able to say with Paul that we have been crucified crucified with Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.